The opinions expressed in the following video are not in their entirety endorsed by this podcast. They are instead the focus of our discussion today. This is your content warning. The book of Acts is not doctrine. Now stay with me. It belongs in the Bible. Everything about it is right, perfect, and true. But it's a history book. We don't build doctrine on history books. We build doctrine on the epistles. And then we have Revelation, which is symbolism. And that's how God wants us to view the end of time. Your loving Heavenly Father doesn't want you to live a neurotic life. He doesn't want you worried about the return of Jesus. He wants you to relax and love others. But as for Acts, there's not enough information to build any doctrine. Plus, this is the early church getting their theology in order. There's quite a few contradictions in the epistles. Circumcision, water baptism, speaking in tongues, being under the law. It's different in the epistles. We must read the entire Bible in context. Welcome back to your content warning, a Bible meets culture podcast where we talk about modern theology versus biblical content. Uh, super excited that you guys have decided to listen to this. Uh, I'm excited to be bringing this one. Um, it's not January yet, but this will release on January 1st. So this will be our first official podcast of 2022. Um, we've done this seven times now, Joshua, and nobody has shut us down yet. So we're either yeah, doing something crazy. right or something wrong. I don't I don't know exactly which. But what's funny is no one has taken our podcast and done their own version of content warning for right. our podcast. So when, so when that happens, we might start thinking right. we're doing something. We're clearly not popular amongst those groups yet, but we're working on it. Yeah. We're gonna get there eventually. We're going to be the subject of somebody's rebuttal TikTok video, and it's gonna be fantastic it's gonna be great um as always i'm nathan i'm here with my buddy joshua joshua you have uh, a special guest coming on with us today introduce introduce him for us yeah i'm glad to introduce to y'all chris jones who is uh, the preacher for the westgate church in dothan alabama and uh, i got to know chris through our phd program at faulkner and uh, chris has a lovely wife and uh, you i know you have daughters do you have any sons chris no sons, three three daughters. So I have four bosses. Yep, that's right. Estrogen runs high in your household. Yes. <laughs> but that's all right. Uh, everybody doing well? The last time I talked to you, I think some of them were uh, sick. Yeah, everybody is finally well. Good. Uh, thank the Lord. Yeah, that's awesome. But Chris has done a lot of work and research in um, Lord's Supper, um, theology, Eucharist studies, and things like that. And the video that we're talking about today talks about using acts as doctrine or not using acts as doctrine. And one of the things you see happening in acts is the taking of bread. And pardon my phone. But uh, I thought Chris would be a great one to, to have on to, to help us sort through this video. So I'm looking forward to what Chris has to say uh, as we kind of get into the, to our discussion. Well, thank- yeah, super. Ex- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Just thank you guys for having me. I really I appreciate say, it. Thank you. Thank you for being on, man. Uh, yeah. It's always exciting to have uh, new perspectives and, and new guys on. Um, I'm very familiar with Dothan. Uh, as much as I don't necessarily like Alabama as a whole, Dothan is always our halfway point when we travel down to Disney. Um, so that's always our, our go-to stopping point. Um, 
But anyway, yeah, as Joshua mentioned, we're looking at a video from a guy named Matt McMillan. Um, one of the things that I noticed right off the bat about Matt McMillan is I don't think he's made a single video or post period that he's not smiling. Um, and the dude has got to heavily invest in his teeth. Those things are <laughs> perfect. Yeah, um, absolutely perfect. But his uh, the video that we're going to talk about, and he posts a lot of stuff. So if you want to go and look at some of his stuff, uh, we were kind of talking before we went on about He's got a lot of kind of what we would consider kind of out there beliefs. But um, if you go back and you look at his content and you scroll through some of the thousands of comments that he's got, um, a lot of people in the exact same mindset as as Matt McMillan. Um, and the video that we're going to talk about specifically, uh, he talks about how acts isn't doctrine, uh, that the only the only thing that we use to uh, I guess kind of derive our doctrine or theology from uh, is is the uh, the epistles uh, and Acts is not an epistle. That Acts is history. Um, we'll get to this in a second, um, but uh, well, we'll get we'll get to this in a second. It's funny because he he highlights Acts and he highlights the epistles, and he speaks nothing of the gospels whatsoever. And so uh, it was kind of interesting to see how all that plays out. But uh, he does. He says that Acts is is not doctrine. That Acts is specifically supposed to be uh, history. And Joshua, you had broken down uh, or written uh, a couple of notes here, um, and and I think a lot of times we try to use theology and doctrine, uh, and we like to use those terms interchangeably, um, and that can sometimes be a detriment because they don't exactly mean the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like interpretation and application. You can't have application until you have interpretation, uh, incorrect interpretation, right? Yeah. So, uh, so they go together, but there there are differences between the two, and the same is true between theology and doctrine. Uh, at least in my mind, uh, they're so closely connected; it's really hard to separate them, and it's almost splitting hairs. And I, I want to be careful about that. But theology is, to me, studying why we do something. So, so looking at the what what I'll call the abstract of it all. And Chris and I last semester were in a class on theology, and it was a, a difficult class. A lot of our classes are difficult, but this one really so was. You guys are both looking for doctorates, right? There are no yeah, easy classes anymore for y'all. Chris will tell you, this one took the cake, I think, on on being difficult. Yeah. yeah. It's not but, a lot of heart. No. But the thing that makes it difficult is you're dealing with abstracts, and you're dealing with you know the what-ifs and the whys and all of that. Doctrine is what produces from that. So uh, you look at doctrine in church practice. Let's take baptism, for example. That is a doctrine that we teach. Well, why is that? Why do we do baptism? Because the theology of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is reenacted in baptism, which is talked about in the epistles and in Acts, um, and, and so on. So the, there is, to, to say that to say that Acts is not doctrine, I think, removes the theology from Acts. But Acts is full of theology, especially if you put it with Luke, which is what the author intended it to do. You know, Luke intended yeah. Luke and Acts to be read together. Well, and so that's one of those things, and we kind of talked about this in a, in a different podcast. I think a lot of times we confuse ourselves when we start looking at everything in, in book, chapter, verse kind of format. Um, you know, because we added all those things after the fact. And so a lot of times we'll read things not connected the way they were intended to, and oftentimes not necessarily even in the chronological order in which they were written. Um, 
One thing that I do want to point out, though, is that uh, he does talk about Acts being a book of history. Uh, and Joshua, as you noted, and, and I want to be sure everybody understands, I don't think anybody would argue uh, that Acts is not a historical narrative. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't use or learn or take doctrine from it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris has done a lot of research in um, the early church. And I was curious, it's kind of off the cuff, Chris, sorry, I didn't put this in our outline, but I was wondering if you had any, um, any knowledge of how the early church used the book of Acts. That's a really good question because you've got, um, you've got a church that's existed for quite a while by the time Acts is written, right? You know, that you've got this worshiping community that's been around for about 30 years, at least, uh, as Acts is written. Um, and, and you kind of look at how the the canon developed in the early church, like how they recognized books and acts was like you said, the Luke acts combo, I think was pretty widely accepted. It was not one of those books where there's a lot of questions, you know, there in some quarters, there were questions about certain books. And then we know that through God's providence, we got the full counsel in our new Testament. Uh, but it is interesting when you start to think about doctrines I think this fellow has developed a doctrine that you don't find in early church thought. So my question would be, where do you find the doctrine of the doctrine that you can't find doctrine from historical books, if that makes sense? There's, mm-hmm. You can't find that even within the scriptural narrative itself, like this doctrine that he's espousing. So he has developed his own doctrine that would not you know, really stand up to how Christians use the book of Acts through the years. This is very unique. And the other part, too, that, that struck me as y'all were talking just now, you were talking about historical narrative. Historical narr- narrative has been binding uh, for Christians. So as you and Josh and I, we've talked a lot about this in our class. How did New Testament writers use the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. The Apostle Paul had no problem with pulling from Genesis in the book of Romans to build doctrine. So he takes the historical narrative of Genesis, which is, would be similar, I guess, to Acts. It's history. Yeah, It's inspired history. So he takes historical narrative about, say, Abraham and uses that to build his doctrine about faith. Mm-hmm. So that to me is kind of the linchpin. How did Jesus use the Old Testament? And so do we have places like, for example, in John 10, 35, where he quotes Psalm 82 to make a doctrinal point. He's quoting from a genre of literature that you would probably think, well, that's not doctrinally saturated you the psalms you know those are poetic well he he sure uses it for doctrine and uh, when i look at that i think okay there's a problem when you're looking at you know inspired writers like paul and of course jesus christ and they're Mm -hmm. using you know genres of literature that you would think normally would not be doctrinally saturated to make doctrinal points if that makes sense so that was one of the first questions that popped for me when i watched that video i'm thinking well that's weird that's kind of just different yeah, well, and so he even makes the comment. He says, you know, Acts history. He said, you can't build doctrine off of history. And he goes on to say that you only build doctrine from the epistles. But going back to that, if you can't build doctrine from history, then where on earth is it supposed to come from? Because um, I think Joshua even notes here that, you know, the epistles at this point are historical, right? I mean, if there's historical accuracy in them, it's, I mean, where do you, where do you, draw a line as to what can and can't be considered history and how you build doctrine off that. Where does it come from? Especially because, and this is what I wrote down, where do the gospels fit into this? 
right? If you can't use, if you can only use the epistles as this, as this man suggests, as Matt suggests, and you're only going to look at those epistles and you can't use history and you can't even use the gospels being, you know, the words of Jesus, where does it come from? Because I've actually heard the opposite of this, right? So um, one of the biggest accusations that that I've actually dealt with from from people recently is is that the church as a whole is too concerned with Pauline theology instead of the words and actions of Christ. Yeah. And this guy would go, well, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, if you can't use history to derive doctrine, what are, what are you supposed to use? Or are we are we going to make the argument that there is no historical context given in the epistles? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Well, I mean, there there's some problems too with that because when you get into that idea, well, Acts is history. Well, you read Galatians too. There's some historical information there. Paul's building the case for you know, his, how he came to faith in Christ and he opposes Cephas and he uses that historical thing that happened, that really did happen in space and time to build his theology of table fellowship in the Gentiles. So there you see, you know, history being used in an epistle to build doctrinal um, or to provide doctrinal information. But I think you're, you're right that if we unroot this from history, I mean, just think about this. This is where, to me, it just blows my mind. The gospel itself is historical information. Now, it needs to be interpreted theologically, as Joshua said earlier. The theology comes along and, you know, it's a historical fact that Jesus died. But then theologically, we learned that he died for our sins. So they go mm-hmm. together, like theology along with the theology, or not, I said that wrong. History along with the theology coming together gives us, good doctrine. I don't know if that makes sense what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but. absolutely. And I, I think too, like when, when I saw this video for the first time, uh, what popped into my head was this guy sounding an awful lot uh, like Marcion. Um, and, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with Marcion, Marcion was a uh, early church Christian who basically took out all the Old Testament. He didn't include the Old Testament in his Bible. He only included the book of uh, Luke as the gospel that he used, and he took out the Jewish parts of Luke and the epistles of Paul. And there may have been a couple of others in there as well. Uh, Hebrews, I think, might have been included. I don't remember. But he, he basically redacted his Bible to the point where it was what he wanted to fit what he thought was right. And you, you can't do that. You know, like Chris said, o- over time and through the providence of God, we have inspired scripture in our hands and you have to use it as it comes to you. And my problem with, with this whole idea of saying that uh, one can't build doctrine on history and that we can only use the epistles for doctrine, like Nathan said, the epistles are historical documents. They are written. Like One of the first things you learn in learning how to read the Bible is reading the Bible in its context. Every letter that we have was written to a specific group or singular person for a specific reason at a specific time by a specific author. You don't get much more confined by history than that. So uh, time, space, and matter are at play within the writing of these documents. And to remove those from the document is a detrimental mistake, you know, um, not to not to get too complex, but if you remove time, space, and matter 
from First Corinthians, for example, we're going to have a lot deeper conversation than we have in the recent past over things like head coverings or uh, prophesying, you know, things like that. So yeah. you have to keep that in mind. So where, where, what Chris said earlier about the letters, you know, uh, he, he mentioned Galatians 2 with uh, Paul and Cephas. That's a historical event within the letter. That's an internal thing. But when Paul was writing Galatians, he was writing it to the Galatian church. That's an external thing. Right. So you have to keep internals and externals in mind. Right. Whenever well, see, and so there's a, there's a whole other conversation, not to go down a rabbit trail that we don't need to. There's a whole other conversation there, right? Because uh, I can remember when I was working in Tupelo, we had a guy who uh, who would hound our Facebook page um, over and over and over about uh, about exactly that. Did you know that the Bible was written to a specific people for a specific reason? Mm-hmm. He's like, the Bible was never intended for you to think that it was written for you or to you. Uh, and so there's like a whole nother like rabbit trail that we could probably go down that we're going to try not to about taking that idea almost too far Yeah. Uh, in a sense of, well, because you weren't a part of the church at Corinth or because you weren't a part of the church at Corinth uh, or Galatia or you weren't uh, Timothy, uh, you know, none of the things within that context apply to you. Um, and then you've got, you know, the the ever popular, uh, which which parts do we choose to view as? cultural at the time versus mm-hmm. still applicable today um you know the the whole idea of the head coverings and the the paul writing to timothy about women's roles seems to pop up in those those particular arenas of of context all the time but you're right you know there's there's a sense in which that you have to take context and and at some point that context is going to lead you to understand that everything that you read of in scripture has got to be sent in, sensed in some sort of historical context all the time, yeah. um, um, period. And so if you're going to say that you can't build any of your doctrine off of history, then you're just kind of throwing yourself short. Um, I do like, Joshua, you made a note here about uh, if you're only allowed to use the epistles, um, you wouldn't even make the argument that you would use all of the epistles, right? Because you specifically mentioned here Second and Third John and Philemon about you know epistles that, quite frankly, we, we read and I think, well, I say that, I think we read them. I don't think we study them as often as we should, specifically for that reason, right? There's not yeah. a lot of big doctrine, theology concepts that we see from those particular books. Um, so if you're going to limit yourself to just the epistles, you, you've kind of put yourself behind the eight ball. Um, well, the thing about it is like, so for example, 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon, uh, right. my, some of my favorite books of the New Testament. You know, I, I love Philemon. Philemon is one of my favorite books. And you get a lot of theology in those books. So, for example, you have, uh, we'll take the traditional approach. You have a runaway slave in Philemon, Onesimus, who runs away and somehow, don't know how, meets up with Paul. He becomes a Christian. Uh, Paul sends him back with this letter that he has, this letter to Philemon from Paul. And in that world, Philemon could have been crucified. He could have been beaten. He could have been, you know, expelled. Or, you know, whatever. Like he, all these terrible things could have happened. And yet, the theology of even though culturally you are master and slave, spiritually you are brothers. That is a huge theological thing. Now, as far as doctrine goes, how do you apply that to doctrine? Well, maybe you could say that uh, the doctrine there is to 
recognize brothers and sisters in Christ and to have a familial relationship with those that you share the spiritual bond with. So putting that theology into practice makes doctrine. I could see that. Um, second and third John, one of them has to do with welcome people into your homes who say that they are uh, Christians. And then the other one says, don't welcome these people into your homes uh, because they're claiming to be Christians, but they're really not, have nothing to do with them. So the theology there is be able to recognize people who are from God. Uh, John, it's, it's, It comes from 1 John, right? Test the spirits. Is that 1 John 4? Um, know who is from God. Okay, so there's a theology. Well, how do you put that into practice? You put it into practice whenever the opportunity comes up. I get that. But to, to make it a corporate doctrine of the church um, par excellence, I just I think you're stretching a little bit. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying that doctrine can't come from these letters. I'm just saying that uh, what we attribute as theology sometimes can be disconnected from what we want to be doctrine. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit? <laughs> not a little really. bit. No, I understand what you're coming from. I really do. Um, but it kind of it, it kind of leads us into the next part because, and this is where I think he would argue, this is where the Gospels kind of play into place. Um, he, he makes the comment that God doesn't want you to live a neurotic life. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want you to be worried about the return of Jesus. Uh, he wants you to relax and love others. Um, and at face value, you're like, okay, yeah, I could kind of get behind that. I'm still failing to see where the argument is that if you focus on acts too much, it's going to lead you to living a neurotic life. Um, and I think that, I mean, as a P, as PhD guys, maybe you understand that better than I do. Um, I think what but, it was uh, was he had 60 seconds to fill, and he got to about 30 <laughs> seconds and needed to keep talking. <laughs> Well, so you've got that concept. And then so I think that a lot of it, because a lot of, you know, I say that a lot of the portions of, um, you know, Jesus talking about the return and the, the kingdom of heaven and all this. So that kind of fits its way into the Gospels. And so he he's, I guess, making the argument that if you just solely drive your doctrine from the epistles, that you won't be as concerned with the return of Christ which interestingly, I think it's was it Second Thessalonians that that's almost what the entirety of the epistles about, um, or maybe I'm wrong on that. But I just I, like I said on the surface, it sounds really good, right? Jesus just wants you to relax and love others, and okay, yeah, I can I can get behind that, but uh, that's not the whole story. That's not the whole concept. Um, and Joshua, you made a, a, an important distinction here. There's a difference between being worried about and being concerned with, right? Um, there's a difference between, you know, I'm going to live my life uh, in a relaxed manner and love others. But when you go through scripture um, several times, it talks about a Christian's life being warfare, um, something that takes a lot of effort, that takes a lot of focus, that takes a lot of concentration. Um, it talks about how we're supposed to be on guard. Um, it talks about how we're supposed to equip ourselves with the armor of God. And if you're living a relaxed life, there's not a whole lot of reason to be using armor uh, if you're not in some sort of battle. So on the surface, I think it's a good thought. But as you kind of dig deeper into that, I think he steps on his own point a little bit there. Yeah, there's a, a passage in Jude. I'm trying to remember the verse. It's either like 16, 18, something like that. Uh, I didn't write it down where uh, Jude tells in the conclusion of his letter 
that we are eagerly uh, waiting for the Lord. So that sounds like we're being concerned with something. Um, like it's to be on, on our minds. I, I think if there is a link to be had, and maybe Chris can speak to this a little bit, I think that there is an assumption that in the book of Acts, if we can link it back to the book of Acts, that they were mistaken because they thought Jesus was coming back like tomorrow, that they, they did not expect him to wait 30 years or even in our time over 2,000 years to return. And so uh, maybe maybe Matt's idea here is that, well, they were so concerned with the return of Christ that they quit doing you know, this, this, and this, or they, they weren't concerned with loving their neighbor or whatever. I don't see that necessarily in the book of Acts, but uh, Chris, you got any comments for us? Yeah, I just, I found that odd, that whole neurotic. I could not understand where that was coming from. Like, how would the book of Acts, you know, be, you know, disconcerting to a person? You know, why, you know, I mean, take the, the warning passages out of the book of Hebrews, I guess, because you want to talk about disconcerting. And that's like a kick in the, the gut when you read yeah. through those. And that's in an epistle, in the general epistle. So I didn't really get that at all. I think another thing, too, that he he's missing is the concept of apostolic authority and how that would have worked in the early church. Canonicity tracks with apostolic authority. And what you find in Acts is authoritative teaching from the apostles. So you build that from the Gospels. You see it in Matthew 16. You see it in Matthew 18. You see it. You see it in the epistles, Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the apostles and prophets. They they are authoritative. And then you get these sermons that carry with them doctrinal statements. So when Peter stands up at Pentecost, and this is one that's, you know, in my home, uh, this is like a home team verse for me, but, you know, in Acts 2.38, he gives them instructions about baptism and tells them theological things, doctrinal things about baptism right there. So why is it different that, that a sermon in Acts would carry different authority as it comes with doctrine than an epistle than an apostle wrote. That, that to me, doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, I don't well, know. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in just a second, right? Because he actually goes through a list of what he considers contradictions from the book of Acts that he points to other <laughs> epistles. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But Chris, I actually wanted to get your opinion on this because Joshua said you were the expert on this. So I was I was super curious about these next two things because he, he makes two comments here. He says that, there's not enough information in Acts to build doctrine off of, which to me at face value, and again, I'm, I'm approaching this in, in my mind, somebody who went to a Bible college, who grew up in the church, um, so there's not enough information in Acts to build doctrine off of, which to me just seems far-fetched. Uh, because in my, it just, like I said, in my opinion, looking at it, Acts seems to be one of the most information-rich books that we have to study. And he says that uh, a lot of what he builds off of that, but there's not enough information, is that too, he says that the, the events in Acts are too early in Christian history to be correct. Um, and, and as somebody who, who grew up within the church, who, you know, you, you can reference the Reformation movement or, or whatever the case may be, you know, we've always talked about trying to look as much like the early church as possible. And so for him to make the argument that 
well, we want to look like the early church, or maybe he doesn't, I don't know. Um, but to say that, you know, well, the earliest churches didn't have it correct, to me, seems very counterproductive to at least what, you know, I think a lot of people would argue we were trying to look like. Um, you know, in fact, was it last week or two, you know, last week, last month, last podcast we did, we talked about a guy who really steps on the modern evangelical church and why Christians need to look more like uh, first century Christians. Um, and so I was, I was curious what your opinions were on, on those two things specifically. Yeah, you can kind of blow that up really quick. Um, and, and the answer comes from liberal scholars even. And what they have pretty much conceded. And, and so let's just say Acts begins in 33, 30, whatever you want to make it, 33 AD there in Pentecost. And that's super early. And we see a lot of stuff happen, you know, through the mid 30s into the 40s in the book of Acts into the 60s. So that's just really early, according to this fellow. But the problem is, if you look at the mo- most core doctrinal statement of our faith, which would be the gospel. I mean, it doesn't get any more core than that doctrinal statement that Christ died for us according to scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared to certain people, even 500 people. Well, we read that in 1 Corinthians 15. And guys like Gerd Ludeman, these these are not folks that are at your local evangelical church. They are hardcore skeptics. They can see that that doctrinal information is a creedal formula that comes from around 33 to 35 AD, that that's been passed down. And they've got all kinds of reasons for this that, you know, we could put the listeners and, and watchers to sleep if we talked about. But it has all these markers of early creedal information. So if you go down that, that path and you go, well, it's too early for that to be binding. They're, they're kind of hammering this stuff out then you need to take the central core message of the gospel and rip it out and go, well, we can't rely on that because that's way early. I think that that's really, I don't know where he comes up with that. That to me is, I don't know. It just baffled me that argument uh, because you've got the apostles who have been promised in John 14 and John 16, that they would be guided into all truth. And it, it, it was after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension in the coming of the Spirit, then we had this, this leading of the church where now it all makes sense and it clicks and you've got just good doctrine, doctrine that can be relied on. So early is a really bad argument. Like you look at that and go, okay, that is a really, because you, you, the book of James is early, possibly. So how early is too early? What criterion are you using? What year is acceptable? Is it 60? Is it 90? Is it At what point have they got it figured out? Well, read First Corinthians. You talk about a really backward situation. And here's the thing. People will point to that and go, well, the early church was all messed up. It's not the message that's messed up. It's the context in which the message goes. It's flawed human beings that are getting it wrong. It's not the apostolic proclamation. I think people get that blurred too much. I hear that a lot. Well, the early church was so messed up, and so we can be messed up. And I'm like, no, that's not a really good excuse. The message is pure and simple and and inspired, and we can trust it, that apostolic message that we find in our New Testament today, because they say in 2 Peter 3, we have the words of Christ. If you want the words of Jesus, you turn to the apostles. Um, But that, to me, I looked at that, and I just, I don't know. There's several things as I watch the video, I'm like, I have no idea where this is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and that's why I thought it was interesting, right, though, because 
I'm trying to look. I'm looking at this video, by the way. There's 1,400 different people that agree with this guy. Um, I, I, you know, and that's just uh, at a glimpse on on social media and on one video. Yeah. Um, so there's got to be at least some following for a a mindset like this. And so I was kind of with you. It didn't make sense to me, but clearly there's traction for it somewhere. Yeah. Well, there's one. Th- there's a couple things we have to keep in mind with these videos and, and things like that. And, and to our own detriment, we've been guilty of the opposite. So the three of us come from a faith tradition that puts acts on a pedestal. I mean, it, it's the book of books for our faith and practice for what we do. So as we approach this video, we come in guns blazing, rightly so, because acts is scripture. It, it's, it teaches us theology and we argue doctrine and, and we're, we're trying to fight for that. We see this video where he says, no, you can't use it. You know, it's it's almost worthless. And, and he even makes the point like, oh, yeah, Acts is good and profitable, just not for, for this. I'm like, well, then what's it good and profitable for if yeah. as Scripture? If it's if it's not going to be Scripture, then just take it out and keep it as kind of an early church docu- document like Clement and, you know, all, all those other ones. Okay, so, but, but we also, with this point, we have to remember, and he has to remember, that the book of Acts, as historical, as as history, as church history, spans the time that the epistles are being written. Right. So, again, he wants to separate the theology and doctrine from the epistles from their time in history. Well, when Paul writes the prison epistles. We read about Paul being in prison in the book of Acts, right? So how do you, how do you separate the event from the thing? I, I just don't see how that can, can happen. Uh, one thing, too, that I think is really important for our argument as we try to rebuttal this video is understanding what Acts shows us in terms of faith, theology, and doctrine. So in our tradition and in the tradition of others, uh, we go back to this, uh, you know, we would say we don't use creeds, but um, there are a lot of slogans that we really do like and use in in the Lord's Church. And one of those is command, uh, example, and necessary inference. And those, those three things when applied to Acts is where we build our doctrine so like uh take the lord's supper on the first day of the week you don't have that command verbatim in scripture but what you do have is you have first corinthians 11 that says as often as you do you have uh, jesus saying do this in remembrance of me you also have acts uh, acts 20 and verse 7 saying on the first day of the week they met together and uh, took and broke bread. And I know Chris has done a lot of research on the Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. And uh, Chris, I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to add to this whole like command, example, necessary inference idea that we get, especially in the practice that the church has today. Yeah, I think there's something to that, like the um, the normative influence of examples. Uh, I know we've taken a beating in the churches across on that one. You know, a lot of people are trying to pull away from 
And I think their reaction is to extremes when it comes to like necessary inference. Sometimes we may stretch that a little too far. Sure. But you find that form of hermeneutic in almost every fellowship. People have done this. And, and I think the key is to me, I started thinking a whole lot about how did the New Testament writers use the Old Testament? How did they interpret it? And what can we learn from that? So what can we learn from those examples? And so you see that happen, you know, like even when we're talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, here's here's an example of something similar to this guy's argument. There was a, I think it was even, I'm trying to think, it was a pretty reputable scholar said this, that there was no form of early Christian worship in the book of Acts or anywhere. You can't find it. Like you can't find the shape of Christian worship anywhere, which is, I would, I would push back against and go, yes, it's there. You just got to read it the way they read it, the way they understood it. So for example, I don't want to like go down this, this rabbit trail, but like in the book of Luke, which is the first volume to the book of Acts, how Luke writes, Luke writes, Luke, um, it's like the iceberg theory with, with Luke. There's some of it exposed at the surface, but there's a whole lot beneath the surface Luke is wanting you to go find and, and search out. And you can see that in all kinds of places. But one place would be Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. So on the road to Emmaus, you have the risen Christ appear to these followers, these two travelers. He breaks open the scripture to them. Their hearts burn. Then he breaks bread with them. And it's the same language you find in the Lord's Supper narrative. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives it to them. And they recognize him at the breaking of the bread. This happens on a Sunday. So you have the teaching of the word. It's being expounded in light of Christ. So you have teaching in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Then you have the bread being broken and they recognize him. And then he vanishes at that moment when they recognize him. A lot of people have seen in that an early Christian liturgy. Like that is what early Christian worship looked like. And, it, and it's right there in Acts. So when you turn to Acts 2, the next volume, you have words like the fellowship, not, not just any kind of fellowship, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, you know, the apostolic teaching. You've got it right there with, with definite articles. Wallace even brings this out in his book. That this is normative. This is formative. Like what what Luke is conveying in Acts is this is how it is. The, the way he says it, this is this is special. This is set apart. This is not just any breaking of bread. This is the Lord's Supper. So you see that same shape in Acts. You just got to read it the way they read it. And I think what happens is we read it as 21st century Americans, and it's hard to channel our any inner first century Jew and read scripture like they read it, more from a maximalist approach, like maximally. I don't know if any of that rambling made sense, but it's there, no, and we just it's miss us. it sometimes. Yeah. I, say, I think we do that with almost every book of the Bible. I think that's one of the things that we struggle with most is reading scripture, period, through a, a 21st century lens. Um, you know, it's I, I bring up that example all the time. That uh, We were uh, teaching a teen class one time. There's a 14-year-old girl. Uh, and I asked her how old Mary was when she had Jesus. And she was like, I don't know, you know, 25, 26. And I was like, right. Everybody just kind of, cause when you go and you look at the, the children's books, every single one of them has, you know, Mary and Joseph depicted as, you know, mid twenties to early thirties. Uh, and the look on her face when I told her that Mary was probably closer to her age than, than 24 
Uh, I'll never forget that look. Uh, you know, it just it completely baffled her. Uh, and we do that with, with just about everything, trying to read things through our own lens as opposed to the lens that they're written through. Um, which I think is is an important you know distinction to make is when you're when you're studying scripture period. And the awesome um, thing that we try to get our listeners to realize is that if you have the patience to read the Bible through their lens first, it makes it so much more uh, deep and powerful and just awesome yeah. to behold. Hundred um, percent, and I do think that that's kind of interesting too because when you sit there and you read through somebody else's lens. I would argue, and you may disagree with this, and that's fine. You can. I would argue that you probably, as as deep and rich as it is, you probably end up with more questions than you had to begin with. Oh yeah. Uh, when you read it through the when you read it through a correct lens, and you're looking for answers, uh, if you read it through the correct lens, you're probably going to end up with more questions than you started with. Um, not that answers can't be found, but it it definitely opens uh, some doors. Um, so the next part of this video that he kind of goes into, and he almost kind of finishes this video with this. Um, he talks about, uh, you know, how there's not enough information in Acts and that it was too early to be correct. And, and none of that makes a lot of sense to us. But then he gets into what I believe would probably be the bulk of his argument is that you can't create doctrine on things that contradict other parts of the Bible. Uh, and this is where he kind of breaks down. Acts is full of contradictions. So let's put for aside for a second. Um, the idea that Acts is perfect and right and true, which is what he says in the video, uh, by the way, that's not mine, that he yep. says Acts is perfect and right and true and is supposed to be in the Bible. And if it's so perfect and right and true, I find it interesting that it also includes contradictions. So uh, as I was sitting here trying to figure out how he was supposed to get around that, if you view Acts solely from a historical perspective and you don't you're not looking to build any sort of teaching or doctrine off of it. I can kind of understand why Acts is perfect and right and true from a historical perspective and still also contains these contradictions. Um, I don't believe that it actually carries any contradictions, but he actually mentions, uh, I think, four specifically, right? He mentions circumcision, baptism, uh, speaking in tongues, and, and being under the law, to which he uh, gives examples in other epistles for those. Um, so he references Galatians 3, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 12, and Galatians 19 uh, are, are references that he gives that are epistle teachings that are contradicted within the book of Acts. Um, and some of those I thought were kind of interesting stretches. So like, for example, the idea of um, water baptism, he mentioned specifically. And I think, Chris, you mentioned earlier Acts 2.38, right? That's always been uh, if you grew up within the churches of Christ, you have heard Acts 2.38 hammered at you uh, until whoever was hammering it at you is is blue in the face. He references specifically 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Corinthians 1, 14 and 17, which is Paul talking about how excited he is that he did not baptize a lot of people. And again, when you're looking at that within context, it's not Paul saying that he was glad that he didn't baptize people because he wasn't supposed to baptize people. It was because of the divisions that were occurring in the church at Corinth. And so I think, anyway, yeah, people, we can break people in Corinth were these. dividing 
over yes. who baptized over who had baptized them, right? Yep. Um, it's I, I got to talk with a preacher friend of mine who uh, he talks about how this may be one of the earliest examples of denominationalism, uh, you know, that existed. Is you know I am a Paul Christian or I am a Cephas Christian or I am a, a Christ Christian or or whatever the case may be. To me, is just interesting. Um, but like I said, we can break down every single one of these contradictions if if we wanted to. I just the idea that uh, the epistles contradict the book of Acts, again, for me, approaching it, you know, as somebody who grew up, you know, going to church, who went to a Bible college, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, but if you have a bunch of different doctrines or theologies, uh, I can see where one would be led to believe um, that, okay, might appear at, at surface. And again, that's why I kind of want to kind of go through these because at surface level, you can look at, you know, Paul going, well, I'm glad nobody got baptized. And you're like, well, but in Acts, it says that you're supposed to be baptized. So where where do the kind of the chips fall there? First Corinthians kind of makes his point, makes the point that baptism is essential or important. And the reason is, I've always heard that argument. I thought, actually, you that's when you almost defer to your uh interlocutor and go just keep talking because that passage really shows how important baptism was that's the point they took their yeah. baptism so serious that it mattered who baptized them so i'm like okay well that, that's like that's making the opposite point uh yeah. than what you're trying to make but the, the part two that, that blows me away about these contradictions is uh not having a true view of church history which you need acts for Yes. And Galatians and Acts go together perfectly. That's why I was blown away, like going, wait a minute, that's that's Acts 15. They're they're working this out in real time. And this idea of it's Gentile Christians that that are not going to receive the, the yoke of the law. You don't see that in the book of Acts. They're doing the opposite. They're saying, well, just, you know, the, the covenant with Noah, basically, with all mankind. That's what we're going to abide by. Not So when I saw that, I'm like, what? It's actually arguing the opposite. To me, mm -hmm. Acts is really fitting perfectly with the epistles and fills in the gaps. Like, I think one thing that he's missing here when he's talking about these contradictions is the epistles, as Josh said, they're, they're written to real time, real people and real places. And there's assumptions already in yes. the epistles of an already existing church, already celebrating the Lord's Supper, already baptizing people, mm -hmm. um, assume there's these assumptions. And so the epistles fill in gaps and without acts, you've got all this disjointed doctrine. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you look at the book of acts and you, you know, acts can almost contradict itself if you're looking at it without the context. And, you know, we, goodness, if I had a dollar for every time we mentioned context on this podcast, I'd be a very rich man, <laughs> but it can solve a lot of your problems. So Paul says, no, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be Christians. The next thing he does is circumcise Timothy, which Timothy is, he's older than eight days. You know, in uh, in Jewish law, Le Leviticus 12, 3, you are circumcised on your eighth day. Timothy had a Jew, had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, so he, he hadn't been circumcised. Don't know why, but he hadn't been. And Paul circumcised him. Why? Because Paul sends him to the Jews, and the Jews are not going to listen to someone who's half Gentile, and that half is the predominant half. They might listen to someone who's half Jewish, and the Jew is the predominant half. So 
that there's a circumstance. It's exactly what Chris said. There's a circumstance there. There's a there's a presupposition that begins every sequence of events, it, not only in Acts but also in in the letters and with baptism. I know he never came out and said it, but I know he's thinking of Ephesians two, um, Ephesians two eight that for by grace we've been saved. Yes, but Ephesians one is all about the blessings we have in Christ. Yeah. And he says, and Paul says in Galatians chapter three that we're in Christ when we're baptized into Christ. Yeah. So, well, so you, yeah, Matt actually makes a whole other video about being saved by grace and how we can't reject God's grace. And so, yeah, that's that adds well, up. Well, I hundred percent believe we're saved by grace. I mean, that, the Bible says we're saved by grace. And then the question becomes, what is that grace? How do you define that grace? That's the yeah. key for, for me. And that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. Right. But, uh, and he, he mentions here speaking in tongues. Yeah. You have speaking Acts. in tongues in, in uh, the book of Acts, Acts 2 on Pentecost. Right. So that's what he, he references Acts 2, and then he immediately references uh, 1 Corinthians 12. So I guess the contradiction there being that in Acts 2, they were speaking in tongues and it was encouraged. In Acts chapter 12, it was not encouraged, so to speak. But again, no, see, that's a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 12. It's not that it's discouraged. It's that well, the Corinthian yeah. church had put it on such a pedestal that it was the gift of all it gifts. Was, yeah. Well, and it was it was disrupting the the service, right. right? They weren't able to worship correctly because anybody that could speak in tongues was immediately speaking in tongues, regardless of what was going on around them. Yeah. Um, same thing for uh, for prophesying. I believe yeah. it was. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, yeah. But the um, gift was never removed. Like, there's nowhere in First Corinthians where Paul says, "Do not speak in tongues because it's sinful." Like that would be a contradiction. Right. Well, I say I think he would argue. That I think, and again, talking about context, I don't agree with it. But I think he would make the argument that that is exactly what Paul is saying in First Corinthians twelve, that you shouldn't be speaking in tongues because it's disrupting everybody, and so therefore you shouldn't do it. It's sinful. Uh, I don't know that that's the argument he would make. I just know that's the reference scripture that he references in his video. Well, the problem uh, is that Paul says he speaks in tongues more than anybody else. So, so if, it's, if it's something you're not supposed to do, you hear you have the apostle writing the letter doing it. Yeah. So I do think that's very interesting. The last one he references there is being under the law. Uh, and he references Galatians chapter 19, um, contradicting Acts in, in whatever way he sees fit there. Um, but again, definitely one of those videos that uh, it makes your head scratch a little bit. But again, we wanted to address it because quite evidently there's lots of people that agree with this line of thinking. Um but he does. He makes that comment that Acts is perfectly right and true and deserves to be in the Bible. Um, and again, he's got to he's got to at some point defend why it's so perfect and also filled with contradictions, as he claims. Right? I don't think it is, but he claims it's filled with contradictions. And so, again, I think he would probably skirt around that by saying, "Well, it's perfect and it's true from a historical concept, just not from a building doctrine standpoint." Um, so if you discredit it as something that contains doctrine, do the contradictions then go away officially as if, it, if you view it as solely historical, uh, do contradictions go away if you discredit it being used to build doctrine? It, it seems to me that he's viewing the book of Acts the way I might view Herodotus histories, um, 
Herod, for example, Herodotus wrote uh, on his visit to Egypt about the priest, and he he talked about how the uh, the, the ever, he, he talked about how the uh, Egyptians uh, were the first to circumcise their babies. But we know from Egyptian history that the Egyptians never circumcised their babies. They circumcised their young men at the age of 13 or so uh, as a puberty rite. And, and so Herodotus is correct in his assertion that the Egyptians circumcise. He's incorrect in the age right. in which they are circumcised. Yeah. So mm-hmm. is Herodotus right? Yes, mm-hmm. he is. Is Herodotus wrong? Yes, he is. So you're, you're simultaneously right and wrong. That's how I think that this guy that is approaching Acts. Is, yeah, yeah uh, just by way of illustration. But the way we approach Acts as inspired Scripture, that is the Word of God, because of what we know and believe about God, what God puts in Scripture has to be true. Right. So, and, and it has to be right. So I have no problem saying Acts is true and right. But I also, in saying that, must also assert that Acts must fit within the entire canon of Scripture. Yeah. Well, and so he kind of closed out the video by making a, a statement that I know that at, at least me and Joshua would agree on because we've said it a thousand times, and I, I assume Chris would as well. But he makes the, the closing statement that you have to read and study Scripture within context, right? I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Right. Um, it never ceases to amaze me uh, how we, anybody, um, whether it's the guys that we, you know, videos that we try to pick apart on here versus guys that we interact with in our everyday lives, um, reading the Bible in context, it, it always is fun to see to me where people pick and choose the context in which they want to apply and which they don't, um, which to me is is always kind of a, an interesting thing to see. But yeah, I think we would all agree that the Bible has to be read and studied within context. Yeah, the, the thing that a lot of liberal scholars try to do is they try to let context disprove what the text is trying to say. So uh, you, you look at, take for example, uh, Genesis 1, uh, the, the waters of creation. Well, the ancient Near East, you have all kinds of creation stories where water is this God of chaos. And, you know, it's this, uh, the order comes out of chaos. And I do think you read that in Genesis one, but they they try to apply cultural context to the text. And when you do that with acts or the letters, you can, if you push hard enough, miss the forest for the trees. No. And it's very or change the context completely, right? Yeah, so you've exactly. Got reading Genesis through the context of history versus reading Genesis through the context of poetry. Yeah, right. Um, that's I know that that's become a big argument lately. Is that the first however many chapters of Genesis are being viewed by a lot of scholars now as poetry as opposed to history? Right. Um, so changing the context, cultural context to me always comes up really big when you look at First Corinthians and then uh, was it First or Second Timothy? Yeah. Um, I know I've mentioned that a couple of times. We'll eventually do a video on here, I'm sure, about somebody who's who's gone on and on about women's roles in the church. But well, I jumped in before think, Chris could, but I think Chris had something to say. Yeah. No, I would I was just thinking as y'all are talking, I think the fundamental thing that is being missed by this fellow in all charity and the people that like the video is the concept of apostolic authority. I think that is a lost doctrine. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you would say like I, 
you look at guys like Colin Hamer and William Ramsey, who was a long time ago, but they both came to the book of Acts and said, Luke is a historian of meticulous detail and accuracy. Like he is really good at what he's doing. So much so that William Ramsey, I think, becomes a Christian based off the book of Acts, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he studies Luke and goes, this is so detailed and so accurate. Like he's right even when the pagans are wrong later. Um, and there's some examples like some some districts that were different in the time of Luke and Luke actually got it right. And so my question would be, if Luke was so meticulous about the details of history and places and geography, why would it be sloppy on doctrine? I would think that would be watertight. So that to me is just nonsense. I, I, I don't you know, just to, a, a logical thinking person. I'm like that, that doesn't make sense at all. One thing we haven't talked about and we probably won't talk about a lot, but you have to remember that Luke got his information from somewhere. You know, Luke had his sources and yeah. tradition holds. And I think rightly so that Luke gets his, a lot of his material from Paul who wrote a lot of our letters. So I, I, there, he, the video is trying to make a disconnect between the event, between acts as a document and the epistles as a document. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier about criteria. I'd love to know what your criteria for an epistle is, because if it's a document written to somebody else for a specific purpose, Acts is written to Theophilus, you know, <laughs> for a specific purpose. Um, it, and it records history, but it also has, like Chris said, that apostolic authority, not only in its source material, but in what it records. So those sermons and teachings and, yeah. and things like that. So, I, you know, it's a... It's a sad thing to see videos like this circulating because it, it almost makes me think either A, you haven't read Acts, or B, you have, not to make a play on words, but you have an axe to grind with some theology uh -huh. or doctrine that's being taught in the book of Acts that you yeah. disagree with, that you think the letters can override. I kind of think that's what's happening here, but... Yeah. It's a sad so those, thing when people those, don't take whole Bible theology and put it together. Yeah. Those that know Joshua well know that he could not possibly make it through another podcast without making a pun of some sort. Um, but uh, Sorry. he's, he's all, he's all about it, but no, I, I agree. Um, and it's, it's definitely one of those things. And so there's, there's a concept out there right now um, that I think a lot of this has to come from is that a lot of people uh, for so, so, so long, and I would even go so far as to say even within the church, there was a concept of wanting theology without religion, meaning that you wanted all the correct answers. You wanted all of the, uh, you know, ABCs of this is exactly what everything means. Um, and you didn't want necessarily to apply that to life. And now we've seen the pendulum swing so far in the other direction that now you're seeing a, a huge uh, movement, I would say, of people that want religion without theology, uh, meaning that you want the ideas of everything and you want to look at, uh, you know, how I believe Jesus would have acted, but you don't want the what is correct and what is incorrect. Um, and I think that there's got to be some sort of balance, obviously, had in, you know, having correct theology and religion and, and so on and so forth. But I think this guy... Um, Matt McMillan, if you want to look him up. In fact, actually, as I was, I was kind of looking through this, 
he actually does make for for your own personal entertainment or, or study. Maybe he'll answer some of the questions that we brought up. Is he actually has a thirty seven minute uh, YouTube video um, that's way too long for this podcast, obviously, but that he actually goes into a lot of detail and depth of why he believes Axe is is not credible as as for building doctrine. Um, but anyway, but yeah, Joshua, Chris, any other comments as we kind of wrap this one up? I would just encourage our, our listeners, as I try to do at the end of our podcast, that you know don't be afraid of asking the hard questions, and and don't be afraid of uh, digging deep into the issues. Like it's one thing when you see a video like this to say, "Well, we can't trust it because it contradicts." No. Well, you know the the easy response is to say, "Oh, somebody has already said that, so that means it must be true," and you don't have to look in it. And kind of what you were saying just a minute ago, Nathan, about uh, people wanting like religion without theology or as it started theology without religion. I think that's true, but I also think it's people want surface level theology. Like we like the theology of love. We right. don't like the theology of like what it means. Sacrifice. Of, of sacrifice. Yeah. Right. Know, of the deeper things. So, you know, this this podcast, I could see somebody listening to it and saying, yeah, but Paul says this and Acts says this, so there has to be a disconnect. Well, don't be afraid to to take what we've done here and do your own uh, do your own study. Absolutely. Um, it's really Chris, good. you got anything else for relief? No, I think that's excellent points. Just the I think if I was critiquing our own age and I'm critiquing myself is we live in an age of extreme individualism. Yes. Extreme um, autonomy more so than ever. Um, And we come to the text with that and whatever fits the current ethos of our time. Scripture is going to be shoehorned to, to fit that. And I think there's also a mistrust of traditional authority structures. And uh, there's nothing wrong with going to a sage, wise person that knows the text and saying, okay, what am I missing here? And being humble enough to listen. Yep. Yeah. I think our generation needs to really think about that. We, we yeah. critique the generation before, especially in the churches across. We do that a lot. And, my dad would say things to me all the time when I was, he, he loved to say slippery slope. That was his favorite expression. And when I look at the dumpster fire of culture right now, I go, well, maybe dad wasn't so crazy after all. <laughs> yeah. I do think well, there's we, just that radical individualism and the yeah it, humility to go, Hey, I help me out with this. This guy's saying something I've not heard before. Yeah. Well, so Joshua and I have talked about that on several of these podcasts, and it's always worth saying that you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to. And so if I can mold Scripture to say what I want it to say because it fits what I want to believe, I can do that. doesn't necessarily make it right. Um, and so there's that's that just kind of leads us. Of course, you know, if everybody had everything right, we'd have no need to do this podcast. And so we'd be out of a job. Would, we wouldn't yeah, have a job. What would Josh, Exactly. What would Joshua and I do with our, our free time if, if that was the case? But anyway, um, yeah, but guys, thank you so much for being on, Chris. It was a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. Uh, excited for you to be here. As always, guys, if you're listening to this and there's a video that has popped up that you want us to talk about, be sure to send it to myself or Joshua. Comment it uh, below. 
uh, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, we are super excited. If you're ever in uh, the West Tennessee, specifically O'Brien County area, be sure to stop in at the Troy Church of Christ. I'd love to see you. If you're ever uh, in Middle Tennessee, the Murfreesboro area, uh, Joshua would love to have you over at Salem Creek. And if you ever do manage to find your way to, to Dothan, Alabama, I'm sure Chris would love to see you. You said it was West Creek? Westgate. Westgate. See, look, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. Hey, we're, on the, we're on the way to the beach, too. So if you take the hey. cut through on Westgate Parkway, perfect. you can't miss us. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Guys, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, like I said, we're going to keep doing these. Until then, uh, we'll see you. Thanks. God bless.